BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello and welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman and I'm welcoming the first episode of this new decade with Dr. Dan Siegel, who you've all met. And if you haven't, go back and listen to the first episode. The first day launching this podcast was six months ago. And so what a perfect way to start the new year to welcome Dr. Dan Siegel back. I am so happy to have him. Of all of your books, which I can't believe I'm saying this because I love every single one, this was my, it felt like home. This was absolutely beautiful. And I felt like you took the science of child development and attachment and parenting and made this elegant and easy, wholehearted book that is just beautiful. I don't, I don't know that we need any more than this. Um, oh, that's so, so sweet. Elisa, that's thank you so much. Um, so, and I want to really talk about it and talk about some of the parts of the book that I think would benefit everyone to hear. And I hope everybody runs out and gets it. So what I was thinking is that so much of parenting, we long to get it right. And it's so dependent on this small cluster of building blocks that building blocks that you know, will wire your child's brain and relationship for life. And once you find that groove with this kind of North Star or intention, you really beautifully, um, and without the pressure of being a perfect uh, parent, went through. So I thought, let's talk about what is the most powerful thing we can do to influence our children's wiring outside of, obviously, biology. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is what we wanted the core of the book to be was that you can think, well, what is the essential thing I need to do in order to bring resilience and well-being and compassion to my child as she or he or they grow? And this is the the wonderful thing about your reflections. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, is that Tina Payne Bryson and I, when we put this book together, we wanted it to be like, what's the essence? What's the core kind of inner stance you take as a parent? And so the simple thing to say, and it's what we named the book, at, you know, is that the power in parenting is in showing up, which we, you know, tease apart into its component elements. But if you just remember that showing up, you know, it means, um, you know, at least four things. It means things that have S's in them. So showing up also has an S. You know, I'm a mnemonic nut. Yes, sober. and it was it's fantastic. So showing <laughs> up has four other S's. Four other S's and maybe even a fifth that is sort of hidden in the book that 
some people will find, and I can tell you about it, uh, so we don't have to make a quiz out of it. But the, the first is safety, you know. So we have a, a long, long evolutionary history, you know, that's a, at least 200 million years, where we as mammals, and, you know, we're a particular kind of mammal, a primate, and we're a particular kind of primate, we're a, a human being. You know, we have particular ways in which our young are born very dependent on us. And that dependency, you know, requires attachment. And the first aspect of that dependency is that the safety of the child, keeping them protected from harm on one hand, and also not being the source of terror on the other hand, Mm -hmm. you know, is Mm -hmm. embedded in the genetically determined way the networks of connection and survival and physiological regulation, we can get into all that. But all that stuff can be woven together as a set of networks that some people call the social brain. And in particular, it's the attachment networks that safety is the first S. When you show up, you're there to protect your child. And also, if you do something that's scary to them, you're yelling at your partner or you're really upset and get really agitated or you have unresolved trauma and you dissociate or you're coming home drunk, all these things, which, of course, the extreme of which would be abuse and neglect. But even without, you know, formal neglect or formal abuse, there are things we do that can terrify our kids. So we try to point out that there's no such thing as perfect parenting, but you should know that if you do things that are terrifying for your kids, then repairing that connection in the messiness of life and the messiness of relationships, repairing that disruption, that what's sometimes called a rupture, even if it's where you've terrified your kid is so important. So it isn't that you're perfect, but it's that you create safety both by protecting your child as best you can and not being a source of terror as best you can. And if if you mess up in those areas, then you make a repair. So that's the first S and that's the first way you show up. Can you give an example, because this actually came up recently in another podcast um, a parent was really struggling with how to, you know, he lost it with his child and he wanted to apologize, but he also was afraid that if in apologizing, he, that, that he might lose the, his point, which he still felt very serious about. And um, I thought you had a great example of a simple way of apologizing when you've, um, to, to sort of get ready for repair and be able to move forward, even if moving forward doesn't mean that you're giving in to your child's desire. Yeah, that's a that's a really great setup in that other podcast you had. And I think it's what we as parents face, you know, all the time in sometimes small ways and sometimes really big ways. And um, when you feel and, you know, have this this addiction to acronyms, but one of the acronyms I try to remember is the acronym PART, P-A-R-T-T. Like, what is the part we play in these important attachment-based relationships? So the P-A-R-T stands for, the first part of it is the P, and that's presence. Um, And this means that you're showing up, you're being there, so that you can allow the A, which is attunement, and attunement will define as the focus of attention on the inner state of the person that you're attuning to. Usually it's with another person, but it can even be internal attunement, attuning to yourself. So you're focusing on internal experience like feelings, thoughts, uh, disappointments, expectations. Uh, You know, we had a family event last night and I said something that was kind of a blooper 
between my daughter and my mom. Uh, and, uh, and I saw the face of one of the people and I realized that was a blooper I did. So I made sure when the other person left, you know, I said, I think I really made a mistake. I shouldn't have brought that issue up without, you know, your consent first. So I'm really want to apologize. I think I made a mistake. And she said, um, yeah, you know, you shouldn't have done that. And I wish um, you won't do that in the future, but thank you for apologizing. Now, I don't know what happened on the podcast, uh, the other podcast, but here on this podcast, what I would say is that to recognize that you weren't attuned to the internal reality of, in this case, saying one thing or the other. And then the R of part is resonating. I could resonate with the disappointment of that person. Um, and then the T is trust, that I could feel the disappointment of this one person, you know, so that when it was in confidential, private mode, I could then say, I, I messed up, you know, and, and she could say, you know, you did, and I get it, and please don't do that again, and thank you for your apology. And the trust is created from repairing those ruptures, but it required that I was present, attuned to the internal experience, not just the behavior, resonate with it so I would feel the feelings and then uh, establish trust in our connection. Because I know how wonderful your adult children are, I can imagine how felt they feel. Um, but I, in this case, this was blowing up at a child for just being, feeling like she was taking the, she was taking all of the space from all the siblings by just flipping out and being unwilling to leave. And her father was feeling like if he apologized for screaming, he wanted to also caboose it with, but, you know, you can't ruin everybody's morning with your difficulties. And so he said, why can't I just sometimes lose it and let her feel a little bit like, wow, I don't, I don't think dad wants me to do that again. And so I think you address that very beautifully because you can still apologize for being scary and blowing up and flipping your lid, as you say, without undermining your boundaries. Yeah, exactly. And this way, it actually really brings up the second S of showing up, which is seen, you know, when he can recognize that his, this is his daughter, his daughter was... Mm -hmm you know, upset about his blowing up, he can see that. So, so the word seen is really about attunement. It's about not just her behavior, but now recognize the internal experience. So you can say yes to the feelings, but create limits, which is a no to the behavior. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, the distinction, I think, as a parent, that's really helpful is that, you know, whether it's, you know, thinking about the networks of uh, engagement that we talk about in this book called The Yes Brain, or just thinking also about connecting, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, and here's just the, the other acronym I would say about this for that father is the acronym COAL, C-O-A-L, is mm -hmm. really what presence is all about. It's curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love. So in the journey of life, you know, he blows up, okay, but he can see what his daughter's response is. So he doesn't let me try to phrase this because I wasn't on that podcast, but I just imagining what he might have said specifically, I would say that he doesn't need to restrict how he can own his feelings. So he can say in the curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love, 
in this cold way. As he's present, he goes, you know something, I blew up at you because you were taking all the space from your siblings or whatever the specifics were. And the intensity of my blowing up was, you know, really big. And I want to apologize if the intensity of that response was scary to you, because I don't mm. mean to make you feel terrified of me. So I recognize that wasn't good, the intensity of it. And I want to see how you felt about it. You know, so then she says, oh, it was so scary. You were screaming, you were yelling, your face got all scrunched up. You know, mm. I was kind of scared. And that kind of an interaction, as much as we want to say we need to have our feelings as parents, if you're having such an intense emotional response and instead of it just being an expression of anger, it becomes a reaction of rage, then I think there's some internal work we need to do as parents mm. because anger is a really constructive emotion that arises in us when something is happening that's not right and we want to have it energize us and empower us to constructively, skillfully assert certain, you know, whether it's parenting interventions or efforts to reduce social injustice or efforts to protect the environment. Anger fuels those protective behaviors that are really skillfully done and needed in the world. Rage is very different. You know, one way of thinking about rage anyway, because there's lots of, these are just words, but when fury, and it's called infantile rage, is a state of uh, incredible irritation that's out of control mm -hmm. um, and leads to whether it's family decisions or romantic decisions or friend decisions or business decisions or political decisions on the international front, whatever, you know, whatever you're looking at, rage makes us unable to think clearly and make skillful decisions. And mm -hmm. so they, they aren't even necessarily impulsive. They can actually be rage-driven, non-rational, unhelpful actions that we wouldn't call impulsive. They were reactive, but they can be very planned out. Right. And this, this is different from just, oh, I flipped my list, so I impulsively reacted. No, someone in a rage state can do all sorts of things as a parent or you know, president or, you know, you know, a <laughs> person who's running a company or, you know, friendship, you can do this. You know, we're just all human beings, whatever role we're in. So for this father, I would say the seeing part, the second S of showing up would allow him to see, I need to see myself and I need to see my daughter and I can take a cold stance, curious, open acceptance and loving to allow us to communicate around this. And he has to be ready, you know, to realize he's the adult in this interaction. And this is the difference. And it really, in some ways, brings up the, the third S of showing up, which is, you know, soothing. That, mm -hmm. in fact, it is our asymmetric role. Our children are not there for, for us to be attached to them in the sense that they soothe us. And right. a lot of parents, unfortunately, who have troubles do this role inversion where they expect their child to be their attachment figure, mm -hmm. to soothe them. And that's absolutely inappropriate. Let's talk more about that. It happens so often, and even in the most well-meaning um, interactions, sometimes people need to hear more about the asymmetrical relationship. So, you know, this is where, and it may seem like just a semantic-like uh, discussion we're about to have, but, but let's just lay out some of the science. 
The word attachment is about a relationship in which you turn to what's called an attachment figure, you know, to be safe, to be seen, to be soothed, this third S. So you develop the fourth S, by the way, of security. Now, Mm -hmm. when we're babies, we are attached to our caregivers. And as human beings, we have something called allo parenting. Allo means other. Parenting is the caregiver. And what that means is we don't just have one attachment figure. Yes, the mother may be very, very important and a primary attachment figure has a special role, but there are a few selective other attachment figures that play an incredibly important role for us as humans. That's not true with, a, let's say, a mouse or a dog. You know, those mammals don't have alloparenting. They have one caregiver, the mother. You know, that's not true in humans. So for anyone listening to us, we need to realize we're, we're meant to raise babies in community. Mm-hmm. And it, there's, there's a really unfortunate misinterpretation of the attachment research, say it's only the mother and all the pressure goes on the mother for right. and month it's after also, year after year. Right, right. It makes people so defensive. And it and really it, is important to talk about that expanded community. Yeah, because it's actually good for the baby, for the toddler, for the child to have more than one attachment figure. So that's, that's the first thing to lay out there. The next thing to say in terms of this role reversal that we're discussing is, you know, um, we say the phrase in science, the baby is attached to the attachment figure. So let's call it the parent, but it could be, you know, a close relative. It could be a friend. It could, yes, we, we'll say parent just for, to simplify it. Yeah, to simplify it. So the baby is attached to the parent. The parent is not attached to the baby. The, the parent is not to be kept safe by the baby or to be seen by the baby or to be soothed by the baby. Mm-hmm. So when, when I hear this, and I know it's usually very innocently said, oh, I'm not attached to my child. Well, some parents actually literally mean it that way. I want my baby to serve this function for me. Mm-hmm. And they place themselves in the asymmetric role of wanting to have these S's from their kid. Now, that's a problem for a child, for sure. It shows there's something really not in at least understanding of the parent. But in, in as we get older, you know, let's say as we move from childhood into adolescence, we start to have attachment figures where the relationship is more symmetric. So, of course, you can have it with teachers and with mentors um, who may not have it with you. So it's still asymmetric. But with mm-hmm. friends, as a teenager, you start to want to be going to seek safety and be seen and be soothed by your peers. And then a romantic partner later Mm -hmm. on becomes your attachment figure and you're their attachment figure as well. So there you see this really, I think, exciting way of thinking about romantic relationships with the attachment part where they are, yes, your attachment figure and yes, you are their attachment figure. And when it's only one way in a romance, that, that asymmetry where it isn't shared uh, in other settings with that figure is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see that too, where there's difficulties with with um, with that. But we have attachment throughout the lifespan. It just becomes symmetric as we get older. But for us as parents, if we have unresolved issues of our own childhood, then when the child-parent relationship is born again, when we become parents, the child in us can get activated. Right. And then we can, even outside of our awareness, have the emotional stance of, okay, here's a parent-child relationship. Yay, I can finally have my needs met. 
Well, exactly. the, the one that's there is either right. going to be your spouse who says, hey, I'm not your mom or your dad. Go, mm-hmm. come on, please. Okay, fine. Well, then you have to work that out with them. But sometimes it's, oh, here's a parent-child relationship. Let me act in the child role here and get my kid to see me and keep me safe and keep me soothed. And when you look at it as these three S's that build when they're there consistently or when there's, you know, ruptures in them, they're pretty consistently repaired. So there's no such thing as perfect parenting. Then what you want to do is allow um, a parent to, to put words to these things so that they can say, oh, wow, I've got my own work to do with my partner. I've got my own work to do in my journal writing. I've got my own work to do with my therapist. Right. Whatever it is, as my daughter once said to me when I was trying to work something out that I described in this book, Mindsight, you know, she goes, why don't you work that out on your own time, not between your son and your daughter? And she was absolutely right, you know, her, her nine-year-old wisdom. It's January 2020. Oh my God, the year 2020 shows up in a lot of science fiction and now it's here. At the time, people predicted that by now we would be teleporting to work or living on Mars. And a lot of those predictions were wrong. The truth is we'll always get the future wrong, which is why we need to get insurance right that's where policy genius can help. I don't know about you, but I find the choices and paperwork and even thoughts about insurance pretty daunting because inherent in having to deal with getting a life insurance policy once you have a family and you're thinking about the future is some pretty difficult stuff. And yet we also have to be responsible and think about what is best for our growing families And that's not just with life insurance. There's homeowner's insurance and car insurance. We need to be responsible adults. And Policy Genius is this really cool company that makes finding the right insurance a breeze. So instead of having to deal with all of that awful paperwork, in minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. And you can save $1,500 or more a year just by choosing Policy Genius so that they can compare programs. And once you apply, the Policy Genius team helps with all the paperwork and red tape that just is so overwhelming and kind of makes you choose something potentially in a rushed way just to get it over with. So if your science fiction dreams of 2020 still haven't become science fact, don't get discouraged, get life insurance homeowner's insurance, car insurance. It just takes a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policy Genius. We'll always get the future wrong. Better to get insurance right. Hi there. I'm Lauren McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, the largest online career resource built inclusively for women. I also have the privilege of hosting our new podcast, The Females. We're here to help with real talk career advice from CEOs, authors, creatives, and other experts to give you real strategies for building a successful career all on your own terms. Each episode of The Females is sure to not only inspire, but also to motivate you to take action and move your career forward. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes and follow along on careercontessa.com. In the book, you said history is not destiny, and by making sense of your own story, you can be the kind of parent you want to be, regardless of how you were parented. And I think that that goes um, hand in hand with this, which is 
and actually you and I talked about this a long time ago, how important it is to take the time to come to terms with whatever your experiences were, that unfinished businesses from your own childhood so that you don't impose that on your children. And so I thought it might be interesting to kind of walk through the different kinds of attachment experiences that people have or people may have had in their history and what that can often translate to and how they can recognize it in their relationship patterns. Or is that too, I mean, that's, that's very much in the book. So it's yeah, staying on no, topic. No, that's great. That's great. I think it is really such an interesting thing to recognize in yourself. And sometimes hearing about it is just a very aha moment for people because they realize, oh, I didn't have a secure attachment relationship. And, or I, you know, oh, I did. And so this behavior of someone else is so unfamiliar to me. So let's maybe walk through that. Absolutely. Well, here's, uh, first of all, thank you for these great questions, Elise. It's always great to chat with you. And, you know, when Mm -hmm. these aspects of science, and I know you're so devoted as I am, you know, to translating the science for practical use, whether it's, you know, in, in professional settings like pediatrics or psychotherapy, whatever, or in this case, we're talking very specifically about anyone who's in the caregiving role for a child, so an attachment figure, and that's often, you know, the parent. So let's take it apart. And, and let me just say a couple of very, very brief uh, science review uh, statements. And, you know, the initial thought I think that many people have is, oh, it's what happened to you in your childhood that probably just gets passed across the generations, which is a totally logical uh, assumption that that's what's going on. So they tested it. And of course, no one had videos in those days. And no one had done longitudinal studies. So all they could do is ask people like, hey, what was your childhood like? And what they found, and now this has been done on literally thousands and thousands of people across many cultures uh, with incredible um, statistical validity, is that it was not what your recollections were anyway of what happened to you. It's how you made sense of what happened to you that predicted whether your child had a secure attachment. And the reason people were so energized about secure attachment was that, as studies later on by Alan Strofe, a colleague of mine, uh, and Mary's, uh, would discover over a 40-year, over a 40-year period in longitudinal studies that secure attachment is the best predictor of all sorts of cool things Mm -hmm. like, does your child have resilience? Can your child engage in mutually rewarding relationships with others? Is she or he or they, you know, kind and compassionate and self-regulatory? All the good, good stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, um, is basically associated with secure attachment. And then you could say, well, okay, then what's the predictor of secure attachment? So then what they found was, as I just mentioned, it's not what happened to you. It's how you've made sense of what happened to you. And the reason that is so empowering as a parent and such good, good news Mm -hmm. from the researchers who weren't setting out to find that. That's just what they found in all these studies is that you can't change the past. No, you cannot change the past. But you can change how you make sense of what happened to you in the past, how you not only had certain experiences, which we'll describe in a moment, but what you did to adapt to those experiences so you could survive. So now as you understand what happened to me, what I did to adapt to what happened to me, now I can actually alter that adaptation because I understand it, because I'm making sense of it. 
and free myself up so I don't just imprison myself by past adaptations. And that's why what we're about to describe is so crucial. When Mary Hartzell and I, my daughter's preschool director, wrote the book Parenting from the Inside Out, you know, it was with this finding after I wrote it up in a book called The Developing Mind, which is now going into its third edition soon. You know, it was all about making sense of your life and why that makes so much sense for parents to do. Mm-hmm. But we often refer to behaviors as maladaptive. And to me, right. I find it so incredible that humans are so adaptive to the the dysfunction that's kind of thrust upon them. So a child who's having quote unquote maladaptive behaviors is actually really just adapting to the hand they were dealt. And so I think that's what you're covering is um, as you go through these different attachment styles is something that we have often looked at as a a maladaptive behavior, but actually they're adapting quite beautifully to this crappy uh, experience they're having. Um, Yeah, exactly. Well, well, let's, let's say that that point you're making is incredibly important. And as we tease it apart in what we're about to discover, we'll see that, and, and I tend to use the word strategies of attachment or models of attachment rather than styles because my teacher, Mary Main, uh, would always edit when I would send her my stuff before I published it. She said, Dan, attachment is not a shoe. Let's say you're, you know, a one-day-old. Okay, you've been in, in the womb. Now, in the next year of life, let's say, you're going to have repeated interactions with your caregivers. And your brain is going to have to have a strategy to adapt to what those experiences are. So the first thing just to say from a brain point of view is that, you know, genes set up the connections in utero for what the brain is going to have as its interconnections among the basic cells of the brain, Mm -hmm. the neuron. Now, when the baby's out of the womb, in fact, even before they're out of the womb, experience starts shaping those connections. But it's, it's in a big way, experience starts shaping those connections. And it does so in two ways. We don't need to get into the big details. But, you know, one is that genes are saying, hey, produce lots of connections, lots of connections, like for the visual system. And then it does that independent of what comes through the eyes. But to maintain the visual system, you got to have clear light coming through the lens of the eye. So as a pediatrician, we were always worried about missing you know, a, an opacity in the lens because after two years, the, the brain structures that were ready to receive input from the eyes, if they didn't get it, they'd start to whittle away. And so that's called experience expectant, meaning the genes produce the connections independent of experience, but maintaining those connections is dependent on experience. Mm-hmm. So that's experience expectant. In contrast, like learning to ride a tricycle, you know, not every member of our species is going to ride a tricycle. And so to learn to ride that tricycle, what you need to do is you need to basically um, have neurons firing together that then wire together. As Carla Schatz was paraphrasing Donald Hebb about that, you know, I say where attention goes, neural firing flows and neural connection goes. So when you're paying attention to the tricycle and your legs and your arms and how to steer that thing, your brain can learn that. So that's called experience dependent. You, you dependent on the tricycle to develop the network for tricycle writing. Right. Um, you know, okay. So I'm just saying all that because it's not really clear. Three systems seem to work together for that newborn. One is um, basically how I'm driven to regulate my body is one system. 
a second system is how I'm going to um, come to understand and be aware of my internal state. I call it the mindset system. And, and the third system is the system for what's relevant, or some people would say it's the reward system, but there's a debate about that. But, but these, it's called the salient system. You know, what's really important. So y- you get this net three systems that are somewhat independent woven together in these attachment experiences. So what's relevant and rewarding, what's developing a sense of the internal mental state of others first, and then myself second, and then third, how I regulate my body, which includes regulating my emotions because emotions in the body are very linked. So those three networks are what we mean when we say social brain. And when we talk about the attachment networks, you know, it basically is these three really exciting and important systems that get woven together. So now when you think about it that way, you're one day old. Right. Your interaction now with your caregiver, and let's just put it as one person, you know, your interaction with him or her or they, you know, that's going to be shaping the way these three networks become woven together. And the simple way of saying it is when you show up by being safe, seen and soothed, those networks are beautifully integrated and well-developed. What that means integrated is they become differentiated from each other and linked. And so they function as a synergistic whole with incredible capacity for flexibility, for empathy, for compassion, for insight, for self-regulation, self-soothing. And so for that baby, that's called secure attachment. When you basically have those three S's and when there's a rupture, it's repaired, you develop this overall model by one year of age. Right. You develop a strategy which basically says, hey, I see my inner world is knowable by another. If my inner world is distressed, Mm -hmm. it can be soothed by the other. And hey, this is really cool because I'm learning to actually learn to be more autonomous in my soothing and I can learn relationships are really rewarding. And I'm not, it's not that I'm entitled. It's that I feel empowered to gently assert myself and say, Hey, I'm really, I'm really lonely. I need a hug. Not, I am really lonely. I deserve I demand, a hug. Get right. right. It's not, I demand. It's that I, I feel, you know, I, I feel whole in myself. I feel, you know, this wholeness to engage in connection without losing who I am. That's what security is all about. So that's the first group. And in the United States, somewhere between 55 and 65% of the general population have this security of attachment as, as your strategy, as your model of attachment. Now, what about the other 45%, right. which in some studies is 30, you know, 3%. So somewhere between, you know, uh, a third and a half, essentially have non-secure attachment with their primary caregiver. So that forms initially was, was found to be in two groupings and then a third grouping that gets statistically um, built on the other three. It's kind of complicated, but so don't worry about the numbers. But if you're doing the research, of course, you know, there's, you got to know these specifics, but for parents, let's just talk about as if they're three independent. Exactly. It's um, easier. And, um, and I won't hold yeah. you to those things because I do yeah. think it's, it's, it gets complicated for parents to understand how this is relevant to their day to day. And I think that's because it gets bogged down in the semantics and in, in the research, which is really still confusing. Yeah, it is. It is. And But the general finding, especially as a parent knowing this, or if you're a therapist helping people mm-hmm. with this, or if you're a 
on the parenting journey to make sense. You know, this is what's so exciting about knowing the science, uh, extracting the principles of the science, having done this for over 25 years with patients, you know, helping them move from insecurity to security, uh, and then being able to translate that as an educator. So, so that's basically what we're going to summarize. So the first grouping is about 20% of the population. So again, remember 45 to 33% non-secure. Now we're going to talk about overall 20% of the overall grouping. So it's a much higher, obviously, percentage of the 45%. So 20 of the 45% basically have what's called an avoidant attachment. And here, what happens is it isn't that you weren't kept safe. So the first S is met. But you're not really seen and you're not really soothed on any reliable basis. So those two second S's of showing up are not there. So therefore, you don't develop security. Security requires the first three to be reliably there. And when they're not there, repair, repair, repair. We couldn't say that enough. No one's perfect. There's no such thing as perfect parenting. So you can relax. But the idea is to know these three S's so that you repair them when they're not being offered. So that is what helps develop security. And even Ed Tronick's beautiful work on rupture and repair mm-hmm. shows that it's those repair processes, not that you have to make the ruptures happen because they're going to happen. Right. It's the repair Guaranteed. processes that build resilience for your child. Yeah, actually, so, I'm so glad you said that. It really does build resilience for your child, but you don't have to go out of your way to make it happen because it will happen. And it's important because you know it's going to happen to say rather than, oh, I'm a terrible parent mm-hmm. and beat yourself up for this. Um, you can say it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility to make a repair. And now what you do, and this is, I think, the exciting thing is instead of seeing these ruptures as burdens to your parenting or problems with your parenting, just see it as the innate, natural messiness of human relationships, Mm. whether it's with your kid or with your spouse or a romantic partner or anyone. And that instead of seeing it as a burden, oh my God, terrible, terrible, terrible. No, take a deep breath. Remember what Elise and I are saying now, that you are a human being that ruptures happen and then instead of seeing them as a burden or you've done something wrong, see them as an opportunity Mm -hmm. to engage in the reconnection process that is often called repair. Now, repair implies something's broken. So, you know, you can sometimes get a bad feeling of that, but reconnection when there's been a disconnection, Mm -hmm. maybe as a more neutral way of saying it. I actually really Um, um, hadn't, thought about that. I think that's a really important point. The repair is not meant to suggest anything is broken, but just it's a reconnection from that. It's a reconnection. In the research literature, I believe Ed and other people at Tronic, you know, do use the word mismatch repair. I think. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but but many people do. (laughs) So we can instead say it's mismatch and then rematch or something or, or disconnection and connection or reconnection. So that might feel uh, just in terms of the feeling tone of the word, better than repair. But yes, you're the so researchers, right. But the researchers, yeah, use, if somebody reads it, you'll see repair. Yeah, you will. So just so you know, that's that's what you'll often see. But it's a reconnection. Okay, so so we say that. So that's the avoidantly attached person is not getting repair when they're not seen and they're not soothed. So basically, that strategy of attachment by one year of age, if you could put just words to it, the brain would say, hey, I've been around for a year. I know what this attachment person can offer me. <laughs> and it, I'm not being seen. I'm invisible. 
Uh, I'm not being sued. So when I'm suffering and in distress, nothing that happens in interaction with that person is useful. So here's my strategy. I'm going to reduce my attachment drive, meaning I'm going to reduce the internal motivation Mm -hmm. to seek proximity, to get close to my attachment figure. And therefore, by 12 months of age already, I'm avoiding their return on a separation reunion paradigm Mm -hmm. called the infant strain situation. And, And that's an overall way of describing, basically, my strategy is this. I don't need anyone. I'm okay on my own. So it's a very organized, kind of premature form of independence, when in fact life is really about interdependence, but not for these kids. Right, and Here, then, and then adults, like, right. Yeah, I, I can't depend on anybody else. They don't see me, and they don't soothe me. So it's not like I'm neglected where I'm unsafe. So this is the key difference from neglect. Uh, it's not like I'm a person without an attachment figure. I get fed, I get taken to my classes, you know, I get safe. No one's letting me run in the street. Um, so I'm not neglected. It's just that it's like a lack of emotional connection mm-hmm. between me and my, my attachment figure. So that's avoiding attachment. And when they grow up into adults, there's a tendency, first of all, for the parents to have a certain adult attachment stance. And then as, as I grow up, I'm going to not 100% by any means, but I'll have a tendency to develop what's called a dismissing attachment, which is what my parent would have had. And that is where when you do this thing called the adult attachment interview, the (laughs) AAI, in that interview, what you're assessing is how has this parent made sense of their life? The two key characteristics of the AAI for the parent who's very likely to have their child who's avoidantly attached to them is called dismissing. And the two characteristic findings of that are, I say, relationships don't matter. What's the next question? And... (laughs) I don't remember my history of relationships, which is really in what's called incoherent because how can you insist that relationships don't matter and you at the same time say, I don't remember anything about relationships. Right. So that's the classic finding in one fifth of the population. Right, that's, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of people. So you may be related to one or, you know, right. uh, in some way. There's, so this Somebody's really going to recognize it. In couples therapy, you know, when I write about couples therapy, you know, it's when you do uh, work with the AAI findings in mind, because I do an AAI find on everybody in the couples work, you know, you're really taking the strategy of survival, which is totally understandable in this case. I couldn't depend on my, my caregiver to see me or soothe me. So I'm going to do that on my own. But now they're in a romantic relationship. They, they use the same strategy right. for their partner. So their partner feels incredibly lonely. So if anybody recognizes that, it's something to think, think about. <laughs> yeah, because these are not genetically determined strategies. Mm-hmm. These are behaviorally, you're immersed in a behavioral interaction of, of, in this case, you know, lack of being seen, lack of being soothed. And so you can see the adaptation is very understandable. And that's what you say. So you're not the partner, so you don't have to be frustrated. You as a therapist, you know, or a friend, you can say, hey, of course you adapted this way. But you might be open to the notion that it could be a different way. And I talk about a case of Stuart, this 92-year-old attorney in the book called mm-hmm. Mindsight. And you'll see the, the way to help someone move from a dismissing attachment stance to, uh, which is another word I use, stance, to um, another strategy, which is security. The next form is about 15% of the population, 10 to 15%, depending on the study, 
And this is called ambivalent attachment, mm -hmm. um, sometimes called resistant. Here, what you see is, um, it, well, unlike the avoidance in the reunion, here you're seeing the child goes to the caregiver on reunion after separation for three minutes and then clings to them. And when you study them in the first year of life, sometimes they're seen, sometimes they're not seen, or sometimes when the parent is trying to interpret the inner experience, they project their own, the parent's own mental state, like fear or anxiety onto the child's state. So let's say a child is really hungry and a little bit distressed because they're hungry. The parent responds with fear because they're afraid they're not going to do a good job as a parent or you know, they, they don't know what the signal means. Well, now because of the what's called the mirror neuron system, which should be called the sponge network system, <laughs> the child sponges up, mm -hmm. you know, the fear of the parent when they're just feeling hungry. Right. So we, we learn who we are through the response of our caregiver. So now I'm learning that when I'm hungry, I'm really scared. No, or am I scared? Or are they scared? No, I guess it's my fear. No, they fear, I, you know. And so now it's like all this inconsistency for the seeing part. That's right. And of course, the soothing part is sometimes there and sometimes not. So this situation leads to a strategy of basically, if it could speak with words, it would be something like this by one year of age. Hey, my caregiver sometimes shows up, sometimes she doesn't. You know, basically I'm safe, but I'm not really seen or if I'm seen, it's, is it really me or is it them? Or, you know, so I develop a strategy of increasing my attachment drive because I never know if I can rely on my parents showing up. So I've got to increase my drive to seek proximity to them. Right. And the internal state is one of confusion, whereas the internal state for the avoidant is one of disconnection. And it's, so they're very, right, they're very different strategies. Very different strategies. And so, and again, you can think about these things and think, oh, do I recognize this feeling or this experience or this strategy um, when I'm responding? And I love how you said, we learn who we are through the response of our caregiver. I love that because it's important to remember that even, again, like the, the parent who is trying to interpret based on their own feelings instead of thinking about what's going on with their infant is kind of wiring a different kind of experience and a different knowing of oneself and an and ambivalent one. Exactly. Well, then that's, that's exactly what the ambivalence is. Like I have mixed feelings. I really, really want my caregiver, but I really can't depend on them being there in a reliable way. They're not going to show, but maybe they will, but maybe they will. Maybe they but maybe will. They right. will. It's really, and, <laughs> like and that, that gives you a stomachache <laughs> just thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, like that. And the, and you know, the, the adult attachment interview of the parent of that child who has that attachment to that parent, because the child will have a particular attachment to each caregiver. This is a crucial thing. And it's support for why we, we know that um, attachment, while it's influenced by your epigenetic controls and genetic issues, it's not, it's not determined by those. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that in a moment. But, um, but here, the, the adult attachment interview finding is one called preoccupied. So unlike the dismisser who says relationships are not important, here the adult actually is preoccupied. I call it leftover garbage, <laughs> you know, with leftover issues, God. not so much of trauma and loss that we'll get to next. but leftover garbage. Like my mom, like my brother more than me. Right. She still does. Blah, blah, blah. You know, and I'm 50 years old, you know, it's like, okay, buddy, you know, work <laughs> on it. So here's where you see, you can work on your preoccupied stance. 
You can work on your dismissing stance. Those are all changeable as adults, Mm -hmm. you know, or for a kid, you can work to help move them from avoidance in the first case and ambivalence in the second case to security. These are called working models because they can be worked on throughout the lifespan. So those were the two that Mary Ainsworth found in the initial Baltimore study. And then what happened was um, Mary Main studied with her, got her PhD, then went to Berkeley. And then she found a third category. So in addition to finding the adult attachment interview findings that it's not what happened to you as an adult, but how you've made sense of it. Another absolutely fundamental finding from Mary Main's lab at Berkeley is that of disorganized attachment. Mm -hmm. So just to parenthetically mention for anyone who's interested in the details, you get a secondary classification of secure or what's called insecure avoidant or what's called insecure ambivalent. Those are, in this case, when you get disorganized, we'll mention in a moment, you get the secondary one of those other three. And the way to think about it is those are the organized aspects of attachment, organized security, organized, insecure, avoidant, organized, insecure, ambivalent. The, the child, just like you said, Elisa, the child did do the best, developed this organized approach to what they were given, and they did the best they could with an organized strategy. And, and that's important to recognize. In the group we're about to talk about now, which in a non-clinical population can be 5 to 15%, depending on the study, in high-risk groups can be over 80%. You know, so, and this, this is the most distressing grouping uh, because it has the most difficulty in life, most trouble with regulation, the most trouble with relationships. So while ambivalent attachment may have a tendency for some anxiety, but it's not like a form of psychopathology, it's just a tendency or the avoidant grouping has a tendency to be controlling and disliked by their peers and be isolated, you know, and that's a tendency to be that way. We would in no way identify that with pathology. In disorganized attachment, is actually different. Here, there is a clinical finding that's very, very um, significant of clinical levels of what's called dissociation. And dissociation is coming from the regular English term disassociation, meaning usually associated things are disconnected from each other. And this has to do with Things like your connection to your body, your feeling of connection to memory, your feeling of being real or feeling of being yourself. Those are all aspects of clinical dissociation, which sadly people with a history of disorganized attachment, uh, they do uh, get difficulties with dissociation. They do have marked trouble regulating their emotions, especially under stress. They do have difficulty having mutually rewarding relationships with others. So you can see where, you know, this is the most concerning group. And if someone were interested in, you know, preventative work, you would for sure want to start by identifying people with disorganized attachment, help them move to even an organized form of insecure attachment attachment, has less disruption to life than the disorganized form. So, So now you're saying, you can say insecure versus secure, now we're saying this organized versus disorganized. And I think and, worth saying that for the most part, disorganized attachment is highly associated with abuse. Is that yes. fair to say? So, right. So let's let's review that issue. So so when they ask the question, okay, well, here's a form of uh, 
reaction to attachment experiences that can have a baseline of security, actually, or can have a baseline of avoidance or a baseline of ambivalence. So that's the important issue there. But in the infant strange situation, unlike just pure avoidance, where they're just avoiding the return of the caregiver or the ambivalent attachment where they're clinging after the parent returns, they don't return to playing with the toys. What you see in the disorganized response in the infant strange situation is a very disorganized, there's where the word comes from, reaction. So let's say the parent now re-enters the room after a three-minute separation. The baby, let's say he was one year of age, uh, he looks up and now maybe he bites himself or he falls on the floor and bangs his head on the floor or he approaches the parent in three steps and then turns away from the parent. So this approach avoidance, this disorganized uh, approach, people say, well, wow, that's really different from avoidance where they just don't respond Mm -hmm. outwardly in their behavior or ambivalence is they jump on the parent's lap and they don't let go. Very different. Those are organized behavioral strategies to the return of the attachment figure. And so the idea is that after the separation, you're activating the attachment networks And then when the parent returns, now the attachment system is activated under this strange situation called the infant strange situation. So now you're revealing the strategy of attachment. That's the whole idea of it. So secure is the baby goes to the parent, sits on their lap for a couple of seconds, says, hey, I'm here. Look at these cool toys. I'm 12 months of age. Those toys are really interesting. I love novelty. You're wonderful. I gave you a hug. Now I'm back to the toys. (laughs) Right. So it's cool. They, they don't ignore you. They see you. They connect with you. They play. They want to bring you to play sometimes. Or, you know, they, get, they go back to playing. That's what they're 12 months of old. They play, play, play. But the other two can't do that. They don't do that. They either continue the playing and avoid the parent or the ambivalent one clings. Okay. Disorganized, what's the approach avoidance from? Well, I, I just spent a week with, you know, two dozen attachment researchers and we were talking about the future of studying disorganized attachment. So it's a, there's a lot of details I could go into in this category, but let's just summarize it for uh, clarity, is basically when the parent is the source of terror, either by severe neglect or by uh, your behavior, you're screaming at the top of your lungs, you're shaking your child, or, and, and so of course, that would get to neglect on the one hand, and you mentioned abuse, abuse, absolutely, physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional Emotional abuse, abuse. sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Those are terrifying for children. They lead to disorganized attachment on a high, 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 high level, for sure. But in the general population, we need to recognize that even when there is not neglect or abuse, which is called developmental trauma, those two things, neglect and abuse, there are other things that might be closer to what has been studied called adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, where a parent comes home drunk And in that altered state, they're terrifying to their kid. Even if they aren't intentionally trying to terrify them, they're still terrifying. Mm -hmm. That's one example. A parent who dissociates can be terrifying to a kid, even if they're not abusing the child. And that there can be such a huge impact in in a positive way by having a parent who is, or a caregiver, who can provide those four S's. Yeah, absolutely. Well, here's, here's... I agree with you totally. And here's just a way to summarize the overall thing. First of all, 
the adult attachment interview findings for those parents that create these terrifying experiences for their kids who then develop disorganized attachment. Now we're talking about the parent. Right. Is unresolved trauma and grief. It's an incredibly robust, meaning powerful statistical correlation. Mm -hmm. If you have unresolved trauma and loss, it's very likely your child will have disorganized attachment with you. And the amazing thing is, if you have loss and trauma that you've resolved, it's not any increased likelihood at all that your child will have disorganized attachment. They'll have secure attachment. So this is the amazing Mm -hmm. finding that you, if you're listening to this as a parent, you need to know that the reason making sense of your life is so important is because even if you've had the worst kind of trauma or worst kind of loss, that'd be even hard to put into words. Taking the time to reflect in journal writing or in your walks or with friends or sometimes with a therapist to make sense of those experiences, meaning sense them, not just intellectualize them, come to go through the pain of the loss or the trauma. The research is clear. It's a gift that's a gift to you. It, in my view, it in integrates your brain because these unresolved states are states of impaired integration. I've written extensively about that, so I'll just say it as a sentence. But you can, throughout your lifespan, integrate your brain from its unresolved states to becoming resolved. Now, the benefit for you is all the ways that the ACEs studies show that adverse childhood experiences may have negatively impacted your physiology. I talk about this in the book Aware and the book Mind and the new book Developing Mind. You can do things as an adult, I believe, to reverse the physiological negative effects of adverse childhood experiences as you integrate your brain, as you reduce the stress hormone cortisol, as you improve the immune system's functioning, as you optimize how the telomerase system works to repair the ends of your chromosomes, as you reduce inflammation, as you make your heart work more balanced in a balanced way with your head. All of these are now established things with people who haven't been traumatized. But what we, what looks like may happen is if you do these mindfulness practices and compassion training practices, you can induce in your body all those things I just mentioned. You can go from non-integrated states and negative physiological effects to changing those effects in you. And with your child, your child can now go from having a disorganized attachment sometimes with therapeutic support, but certainly with your inner work, they can now develop a secure relationship with you because now you can show up for your child. They can be seen, they can be soothed. And in this case, what we're identifying for disorganized attachment is they were not safe. You may not have protected them from harm, or you may have, but you were the source of danger. And that led to a paradox in your child's brain where the attachment system says, go toward my attachment figure to be protected. The deeper survival reflex from our reptilian days says go away. You have one body you can't go both toward and away from the same person. That's the approach avoid issue. So you collapse. There's a collapse in the organized strategy of attachment. The beautiful news from attachment research is even if you haven't been able to show up for your child, now with all the information we're providing you, you know, with the power of showing up and parenting inside out or, or learning more of the science, you can, because of neuroplasticity, change the way your brain and its body function to bring integration and well-being into your life and security available for your child as you show up for them. And that is why when you read The Power of Showing Up and you think about these things, 
it's a happy, to me, there's a, there's a beautiful message because what is the point of thinking or learning about any of these things if you cannot change any of it? And that is why exactly. I love what you're saying. I love what you're writing. I love this science because we really do have power here. And so I, Dan, I hope that you'll do this again. I, I hate to, of course. I hate to torture you all the time, but I, I can't get enough. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, and I really love this book so much. Honestly, I thought nobody has done this yet. Nobody has taken that science and made it actually so, it's almost like from page to stage in, you know, in, in theater, like it really takes the science into how does this matter for what I can do as a parent or a clinician or fill in the blank, but certainly as a parent. And I love that. And it's also so many people interpret this science as a depressing side of things when it is the most heartening science, I think, out there. Absolutely. That's a beautiful, beautiful way of summarizing it. And I hope this has been helpful for everyone listening. And and let's do some more whenever you want to. It's been really fabulous to be here with you. And now for listener Q&A. The first question is, my 12-year-old son was invited to a movie dinner sleepover birthday party, and we just saw the same movie yesterday, and he's not keen on sleepovers and is conflicted about whether or not to go. I told him not to just think of himself, but I'm leaving the decision up to him. The party is not just about him. It's about celebrating someone you're friends with. What do you think? How can I advise him and frame it? Well, since we just had this discussion with Dan about the four S's, let's use that as the guide. Um, So you want to make your son feel safe. And he told you that he was conflicted and you were open to having him share that with you and letting him know that he can share his thoughts and feelings means that he is safe with you and you can help him feel seen. And this is where you may want to let him know that you see where he's coming from and, and who he is. You did tell me that he's not a sleepover type. And so it might be a great opportunity to say something to him like, well, it seems like you're in a conundrum and it sounds pretty tricky because you're not a big fan of sleepovers and you already saw this movie. So I wonder if you're kind of feeling a little bit like it's a burden instead of a fun celebration. Um, and then you might, that was just an example. I never want to say what to say, but just something that lets him know you get him. And then that soothed part, you might say, I'm here if you want to talk through this or just relax for a bit before worrying about it. Or you might say something like, do you want my advice or do you want me to just listen, which is also totally fine. And then that secure part, which is, I love you. And I absolutely trust that you can make a good decision about this. Let me know if you need my help. The tough part is that if he doesn't want your advice, reminding him that parties are not just about him, but celebrating a friend, while a very important message, if he's not looking for your advice or that message, he may feel shamed into going this time, but it's not likely to give him the bigger life lesson that you're probably looking for. And that's something that we all fall into very easily, which is we want to kind of get our kids to understand how to see things so badly that sometimes we can shame them into making a good decision, but we really want to help them make those decisions on their own. And if we say it's your decision, then it needs to really be their decision. You can also say, you know what, I'm going to call this one. I'm going to have you go because I think that this is important to share with your friend and imagine how he feels. 
So it's my decision. But if you're really giving him the ability to make that choice, it's not really his decision if you're saying, I'm going to let you make this choice. I hope you'll make the right right one. You know what I mean? Um, so either way is fine. And I think it's a great opportunity, as many of these things are, to use those four S's as your guide and check in with yourself to make sure that you're not saying one thing, but actually there's a different message in there. The second question is, Hi, Dr. Lisa. I'm hoping you can answer my question either here or on the podcast. Here means this was a DM message. I have a six-month-old daughter, and I'm staying home with her this first year, but I'm torn about going back to work when she's one and putting her in preschool. I'm just feeling like I want to get back to work for mental stimulation and more socialization, but I just feel so selfish doing that. I know going to daycare or preschool would be so hard for our daughter, and I don't want to do that to her. At what point am I doing what's best for her versus me? I want her to be happy, and I'm happy staying at home, but God, it's just so hard to make the decision. Should I wait until she's two so it's less traumatic? Also, she's going to be our only child, so I'd like to get her a lot of socialization. I don't think you're alone in this question. I think a lot of us have that very question, and I can tell you that trying to make a decision when you have a six-month-old is a very different feeling than what you're going to feel like when you have a one-year-old or a two-year-old. But I want to point out something that you mentioned, which is, do you take care of yourself or do you take care of your baby? And those two things are inextricably linked. And this is something for you to really think about from now to eternity. A mom who is taking care of her mental health is taking care of her baby's mental health. So if you can somehow think through what will make you a more present mother, then that decision is going to be a better decision because children will adapt in safe, healthy daycare settings. You want to make sure to find a high-quality program and make sure that all the caregivers are wonderful and loving and kind and attentive and qualified, and then they're going to be just fine. You might also decide you will be in mental anguish if you are separating, and so you'd rather just be there. Neither one is going to be the right answer for me to give you because I cannot know what you are going to feel like. It's a little bit like you put your oxygen mask on first. I just flew yesterday, so it's on my mind. But when we say, when we get that direction of put your oxygen mask on first, it is specifically so that you can breathe and take care of the people that you need to care for. Otherwise, just to take that further, if you're passed out, you can't take care of anyone. So I wish you luck. And remember, this is all going to change daily, these emotions of having a newborn. And congratulations. Thank you for listening. And please join me next week when New York Times bestselling author Peggy Orenstein is going to talk about boys and sex, young men on hookups, love, porn, consent, and navigating the new masculinity. Our culture pays so much attention to how we raise girls through puberty and all of the topics that we're going to continue to dive into. And in fact, Peggy Ornstein wrote a best-selling book called Girls and Sex. So now we're going to have a conversation starter for the much-needed discussion in this Me Too era on raising good men. Thank you for trusting me and for listening. And please send questions in through my direct message on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. I have so many of them, and I really enjoy them, and I'm doing my best to make sure that I get to all of them, albeit a little bit more slowly than I'd like. 
And for more highlights, follow me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode and are in the mood, feel free to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. Have a wonderful weekend and a happy new year.